Oh. He has given us a show. A show is the sign. Let us follow his example. What? Let us, like him, hold up one shoe and let the other be upon our foot, for this is his sign that all who follow him shall do likewise. Yes. No, no, no. The show is a sign that we must gather shoes together in abundance. Cast off the shoes. Follow the goods. No, let us gather shoes together. Let me. No, no. It is a sign that, like him, we must think not of the things of the body, but of the face and head. Give me your shoe. Get off. Follow the gourd, the holy gourd of Jerusalem. The gourd. Hold up the sandal as he has commanded It is a shoe. It is a shoe. It is a sandal. Cast it away. Put it on. Clear off. Take the shoes and follow him. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 34. Two list episodes in a week, Tom. Maybe we hit three. Yeah, that that would be crazy. What if? Just this progress and the state of order, we're doing a lot better in Iowa. Well, everyone's everyone's doing better than fucking Iowa. I mean, people are almost always doing better in Iowa. Maybe not in Indiana. Yeah, no. Well, I feel like, I I mean, I don't think a lot about Iowa, but maybe that's because they're doing, I just assume they're doing well. But I think Indiana's gotten tough. I do. do you think they're doing well? Them in Nebraska. I don't think I any, just always assume those are two states, the I are states doing, good. doing well. Is Idaho okay? I Illinois, just, Illinois is Illinois okay. Fine. I guess they, they have some crime issues they have to deal with, but yeah, yeah. I don't but know. That's because that was a major export area for like the Sonolia cartel. I feel like you could 90s. say any state. Like, how are they doing? And you're and everyone would be like, I don't know. It's something. Always something. Sure. People in Oregon seem like Oregon. I've never... A lot of Oregon's like... Or, you know Oregon Knights. You know what's funny is that... Oregonies? I've, Oregoners? I've listened to people from Oregon talk on like podcasts and stuff like that, and they always... They say like Oregon's really beautiful, but none of them ever sound happy. They're all like, yeah, it's really beautiful. Like there's something going on in Oregon that they just are... Like no one wants to talk about, but People it's, from Vermont seem like they like Vermont. They do. Wisconsin? Wisconsin's like... One of the happier states. Wisconsin's pretty good. Yeah. Wisconsin's pretty good. So basically, you just got to be around a lot of cheese. Which, you know what? Makes sense. Cheese is good. When I'm surrounded by cheese, I'm pretty I'm pretty ecstatic. happy. Yeah, yeah, um, Unfortunately, these, these next three days are, uh, these, the surrounding three days of politics is pretty pretty sour. Ugh. Not a good kind of sour. Are there good sour cheeses? Sour cheese, is that a thing? A sour cheese? No. no. I, don't think there was, I don't think there's any good sour cheeses. No, what's it called when a cheese is like funky? Is it just funky? It's a funky cheese, like a. It's turned. It's uh, tart, like a tart cheese. Tart, tart cheese. cheese. Yeah, tart. Tart sounds. Well, right. you could put stuff in cheese that way, I guess it would make it tart. But I, if somebody said try this tart cheese, I'd be like, okay. If somebody said try this sour cheese, I'd be like, mm. unless it's sour cream. I like sour cream, quite a bit. But three sour days of politics with the uh, handling of the IO caucus, the speech that that guy's doing tonight. Um, can't remember his name. And uh, the acquittal of said person tomorrow. Um, I felt person it was, in air quotes, yeah, yeah, barely one. 
uh, it was appropriate to go to a sour beer. Yeah, good, and, good, good take. And because we're crazy dummies, we're hippie liberals. Yeah, we're going really far on the table. East Haven. Yep. Holds over there in the Beerics, the uh, big old monstrosity of breweries in one building. And we are doing their Fruit Kissed Sour Fruit Ale, which I'm looking for information about. I'm not getting a lot of it. It's a 4.5% sour ale. Sour fruit ale with cranberry and tangerine juice added. Where do you see that? Well, I don't like it when they added juice, though. That's... So we'll have to see. I don't like it when they add juice. Split. Unless they added, like, the fruits. That's fine. It's not bad. It's got it's less of a sour. And more, it tastes more like a wine to me. Mm, mm. Like usually sours have definitively carry that malt flavor to them or like a slight hoppiness to it. This doesn't. This just carries that kind of like, it has a grapiness to it. Um, Here's what I'll, a grapiness is interesting. And, and it's less sour and more tart. It's Yeah, it's got a, did you say a maltiness? No, it does not have does a not maltiness. It does not have a maltiness. No, it's, um, it, the, I like when the sour flavor really lingers, when it kind of stays on, it like fills this your mouth up. This does not. This does not. As it as you swallow it, the sour just kind of evaporates. I think the taste itself kind of evaporates. It's just kind of, it's it's pleasant when it's in the mouth, but it kind of goes. It's like a juice. Like you know, when you have juice and you're like, oh, this is yeah. a tasty, ju- a tasty grape juice, and you swallow, and I was like, well, there's no grape. There's maybe a little grape aftertaste, but there's. Mm. There's not a lot of not a lot else. I mean, it's not it's, bad. I I th- I like that. But if you want a lingering flavor, you're not going to get that. I just I like the experience of drinking sours now. You know what I mean? Mm. Where like there's no more IPA experience. You know what I mean? It's not just kind of like exploding your mouth anymore. Like you could drink a good IPA, but you're not going to drink this. Tastes like a Riesling to me. Like I feel yeah, like it's a, little a Riesling bit. in a can. A little bit. Like it's not. It doesn't really taste like a beer. It tastes like it tastes like a like a wine. Maybe Holes accidentally put some some cheaper wine in a can. It's not, it's not bad. Not though. bad. It tastes I like good. I like Riesling's. I just want I want like more aggressive. Yeah, sour I, flavor. I think if it had like a higher malt content, mm. it would, would kind of like linger there because it, its mouth feel is is pretty unimpressive. Yeah, it's a little 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 thin, little a watery. Little flat, yeah. Um. Speaking of watery and flat. You watched the documentary. I don't know if it's watery or not. <clears throat> I was just trying to be a yeah. Bad we can. I was after we said that. I was like thinking of <laughs> how to do that also. Um, yeah, I watched. Um, I found her. I find her music to be watery and flat. Yeah. Well, that's we can we can go there too. But this is uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, is the new Taylor Swift documentary Miss Americana? I did not see this. Nobody physically saw me for a year, and that was what I thought they wanted. I have to deconstruct an entire belief system, toss it out, and reject it. American glory faded before me. It woke me up from constantly feeling like I was fighting for people's respect. I saw the scoreboard and ran for my life. It was happiness without anyone else's input. do this. I need to be on the right side of history. Taylor Swift broke her silence on politics over the week. Her voice in a whole new way. Whoa, that was loud. That's unpleasant. Whoa, that was really loud. Um, 
Yeah, so Ms. Americana is directed by Lana Wilson, um, who has been nominated for two Independent Spirit Awards for Best Documentary Feature. It was produced by Morgan Neville and um, Katrin Rogers, who did 20 Feet from Stardom. Um, Morgan Neville, obviously, you know, who's directed a bunch of stuff, but he had the great 2018 with uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor and um, You'll Love Me When I'm Dead, the Orson Welles movie. I think the only reason that this movie was interesting to watch is that it is we've entered the new domain of, of, of film now, I think officially, Mario, where a movie will premiere at Sundance, and then literally a week later it is on Netflix. And that just seems well, we got, uh, so weird. I mean, you got the you got, we got the series. The, uh, the, the Allison Brie movie coming out. Soon. Well, that's the thing. Horse so Girl. you have all this stuff that premiered at Sundance, which normally you would either A, never get to see, or it'd have to just wait until it showed up on video or something. Or, you know what I mean? Or like you would wait the entire year. Like look at Precious. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. People were like calling the race for Monique in January, and Precious didn't come out until October, November. I think. Yeah, maybe December. Um, so it's weird. It's I just I find this stuff so weird that like people are talking about it, like oh it's a big Sundance movie and it's like oh now here it is just watch it alongside you know great episodes of Great British Baking Show and Pokemon movies. Um, Which makes me wonder if Sundance will eventually become kind of irrelevant if, like, they keep getting, if Netflix keeps buying this stuff up and just instantly releasing it. Because, well, yeah, like, why would Netflix long... have their own festival and just, yeah, like, go, just well, show not, me things? Not only that, but, like, because it's so early in the year, if you and you're not holding, if you're not holding on to these movies, then the movies coming out of net coming out of Sundance aren't going to maintain their relevancy. Well, yeah, I wonder these. what the like, goal. It's like what happened in the late night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder what the goal is with this movie. Like, I, I doesn't. It has a, a pedigree. It has a, a, a an award caliber pedigree. But this movie is not like an award caliber movie. So basically, what it does is it tells, um, it shows you the life of Taylor Swift chronologically while focusing on like the last three years. So the release of Reputation, her last record, and then up to Lover, her new record that came out in 2019 um it also in between there she kind of grapples with the idea of how political she wants to be so i guess she you know she came out in favor of the the tennessee uh democrats in like during the midterm elections um she which you know um reds didn't lost to stupid marsha blackburn um but so she really wrestled with the idea of of what she really wanted to do something she had been um, sexually assaulted in 2013, and the guy that assaulted her filed a defamation suit, which she won. Um, but that experience, but it may led her to kind of feel like I have to do something. Like Marsha Blackbird's a fucking witch, and so she was like, "Well, I can't just let her. I can't just let her say whatever she wants. I have to speak up." Um, it's a un, a very unremarkable documentary. Um, Taylor Swift is on the phone. On her phone, like seventy-five percent of this film, like talking on the phone, or no, just like, like just doing stuff, like either looking at things, like on the internet, or um, there's a lot of footage of her in a recording studio, and she always has her phone in front of her, like for reading lyrics or playing recordings or making notes, um, which is fine, I guess, in theory, but it's just weird. You are literally watching this person always on her phone. You know what I mean? And except for when she's like younger and phones didn't exist. <laughs> But as she's older, new Taylor Swift, she's always on her phone. The other thing that's weird about this movie is that her life fucking, her life is fucking stupid. So she's just carted around everywhere by four or five vehicles. 
Um, she's got a whole team that follows her everywhere. She goes on planes with her cat that sits in a in a bag with a big plastic dome on it. Um, Why does it have a dome? So it can see out Mario, so the cat can see out. Um, so she kind of wrestles. The film is kind of about her wrestling with her, like how famous she is, and and and, and the the implications and the repercussions of that fame and you know how like the people are haters and all this other stuff and you just kind of unless you really like taylor swift or you have more compassion for famous people than i have you just i don't see what there is to care about you know what i mean like aside from the sexual assault thing or like people breaking into her apartment to sleep in her bed when she's not there you know people saying mean stuff about her on twitter doesn't really doesn't really bother me you know it just doesn't and there's even a part part where like the whole screen for a couple minutes is just filled with twitter boxes you know what i mean of like tweets of of people saying mean things like oh people were tweeting about me all the time it's like you know i don't care you have multiple houses you fly in a private jet everywhere like it's okay that people say mean things about you i think maybe it's not i don't know but again i just don't feel that kind of empathy for her um I will say this though in closing. I think it's an interesting it's an interest it's not a good movie but it's an interesting movie. Taylor Swift seems like she's slightly becoming an interesting person um for the kind of personal epiphanies that she's experienced recently. I was reading this article in the New Yorker um by uh Hilton Alls who was the fucking best. Um he's like the theater critic for the New Yorker and he was he read to see a, a Louis CK show recently and he uh was writing about how <clears throat> like Louis C.K.'s problem is not so much like that he's not confronting like the shitty things that he did. It's that he used to confront the shitty aspects of his life and he would use his comedy to kind of wrestle with how shitty he was and what it meant for about him and like where it placed him in society and all this other stuff. And it seems like he's going, you know, Hilton Alls kind of writes that he's going right up to the line of where he would normally do something like that. And then he's just kind of not doing it. And that's why he's become such a disappointing figure for, as a, from a comedy standpoint. He's a disappointing figure from a person standpoint because he's garbage. But he's a disappointing figure from a comedy standpoint because he's no longer <coughs> he's no longer willing to kind of take those risks and look at himself in that way. This movie is interesting because Taylor Swift, um, who has not done anything wrong to anybody. I mean, maybe she was mean to somebody, but I don't care about that stuff. Um, but has is really grappling with her personal responsibility um, after having acknowledged her role and her place in like what she perceives to be the patriarchy, but which I'll just call like the shitty modern culture that, you know, we all have to live in. Um, she is, and, and I'm not going to, I'm not even going to be as cynical as to say that it's fake or it's for something. Cause there, I don't think she has an album coming out. I think this just exists. Um, I don't think she'd worry about trying to sell an album that's already a year old. Um, she's really trying to wrestle with um, something and she's, and she's moving in a certain direction as a person. And I think um, that's ultimately what this movie should be about. Unfortunately, if you're showing like a super famous person, their normal life, it can't just be about that. It has to be about like their weird famousness. Um, But I think she deserves a lot of credit for um, kind of parsing through the shit that like society has been heaping on, um, 
women for, you know, forever and, and recognizing her place in it and, and what it means and how she can change it. Um, I think for that, it's an hour and 25 minutes. It's not going to cost you that much of your life if, if you want to or don't want to. But again, as a movie, it is, there's not a lot to see. You know what I mean? You can just go watch a Taylor Swift like music video or a concert video or something like that, and you'll see a lot of the footage that's there. Um, you know, I guess for fans, it's really just the background stuff. But it's not, uh, you know, it's okay. I think it has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is not a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes movie. Well, I mean... It's, it is a solid high five, good work, Taylor Swift well, type of movie. Rotten Tomatoes just mean did we enjoy it or not enjoy it. I mean, what's its Metacritic? Metacritic would be a better parameter for this. Mm. I mean, something could be ninety percent and just be like fine. Sure. I think people put too much like, why is this rated a ninety or why is this rated a hundred? It's like it's a sixty-five on Metacritic. I, would you say that's fair? Yeah, it's sixty-five, seventy, something like that. Yeah. I think people just look at Rotten Tomatoes and see like ninety percent and go like, well, shit, that must be great. I always look at that second score below it on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, of the amount of like the number, like the amount of reviewers. No, not the, not the not the amount of reviewers, but there's a second. So it's 92% now, but, um, oh, where is it? Sometimes they show it, but they'll show like average review. Uh-huh. And like the, and like the average, what the average grade is. It's kind of like a, a, a oh, sad yeah, 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 yeah. And like, that's, that's the brand. Right, yeah. I think. Cause like a movie could be a hundred percent and just be fine. Yeah. I mean, a lot of movies are like now a hundred percent and are just fine. Yeah. What's that movie that's getting advertised? It's like a hundred percent Rotten Tomatoes. It's like a weird movie. Not the rhythm section. No. Not the grudge. No, not even not the turning. Not the turning. So I don't know. But yeah, if you like it, if if you like her, I mean, I was, I was refreshing my New York Times webpage every ten seconds last night while uh, watching this movie because I watched it because I was staying up waiting for Iowa caucus results. So if you have to stay up late to watch Iowa caucus results, you can you'll be better served watching this Taylor Swift movie instead of watching <laughs> the nine pundits on CNN, including Rick Santorum, just twist and fucking ride through this terrible, terrible yeah, evening. The, the worst thing part about that was Rick Santorum sounded like sane. Yeah! And I was like, oh my god, is this how far we've fallen? Well, the, Rick Santorum sounds sane, and then meanwhile, right after that or before that, like, two people read the same, like, text from the Iowa Democrats... But like with different inflections on certain words. Although I did like the fact like that it's I, was, different information. I was listening when they were talking to that one um, precinct chair. And they, and they, they picked up, up and on. they got hung up on. Yeah, I saw that, that too. That was pretty good. Um, you know who doesn't get hung up on? Yeah. A man on a train car mm-hmm. interrogating a monkey. Yeah. You can't hang up on that guy. Because, you know, you're, you're going to watch all of that. Yeah. You're going to wonder what the hell's going on. And you're going to wonder if that monkey committed some murder. Yeah. Especially with an interviewer and interrogator's David Lynch. And you're asking, what did Jack do? True love's flame so bright It's love's
originally released in November 2017 for the Foundation Cartier in Paris. What Did Jack Do is a 17-minute short film in which a detective, played by David Lynch, interrogates a monkey, Jack Cruz, on a train car about a murder. The murder of Max. can't remember his last name. The, 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 I don't remember. Max. Um, they trade barbs back and forth in a series of euphemisms and... Just unrelated one-liners, yeah. One-liners that have been spread throughout the history of film and expressions. And we learn uh, that Jack has a has an affinity and a love for uh, farm birds. Mm. He grew up near a farm and eventually fell in love with Tutotabin. Tutotabla. Tutabla. Tutabla, yeah. A hen. Um, and... Still expresses that he did not murder Max. Uh, eventually, he sees a, a, an image, uh, maybe a hallucination of his love, and runs after her and is arrested for the murder. That part was crazy. Right. Um, meanwhile, he does he does have a musical number where he sings. Which you just heard. Which where he sings about his love. Yeah. Um, this is a David Lynch short, so it is David Lynch to the extreme. Uh, in but not not necessarily. Um, I don't know if I'd say that. It is a distillation of the sort of stunted, odd, um, ever so slightly uncomfortable and, you know, very unnaturalistic dialogue that, mm-hmm. that kind of penetrates through David Lynch's filmography. You don't get that kind of weird fatalism or the... Um, kind of hallucinatory, nightmarish sort of Lost Highway era of David Lynch or Twin Peaks. You, you definitely get a very kind of maintained well, normal and to an, to an extent and of... it seems funny. Yeah. But it also seems like weirdly too well made. Yeah, yeah. Like no, the feels, mouth... feels clean. So that is, you know, it's a person's mouth on this monkey, guys. It's not the, it's not the monkey actually doing the talking. Although it, you're able to... Sus- not... We're not 100% sure. sure. There are some really good angles here where that mouth matches up really, really David nicely Lynch with that. David might have discovered some science. Well, it's funny. It's on the Wikipedia thing. It says, like, somebody asked him what he was doing, and he said he was working with a monkey named Jack. Like, that's all it said. Like, he was just, like, they were collaborators or something. Yeah, I've, uh, I love to build things, and this is for a monkey movie. I'm working with a monkey named Jack, and that will come out sometime. It is not a chimpanzee. The monkey came from South America. It's not a chimpanzee. It's a cap, ca, capuchin monkey. Yeah. But I mean, this is another... So this, you know, it's another Netflix movie. So for all of you people that have Netflix, go go watch it. There's actually a lot of really interesting short films on Netflix now. Made by actual, like, legitimate directors. Um, you know, we talked about the, the Tom York music video that Paul Thomas Anderson did Anima um, last year. Um, but it's just... it's. You know, friend of the program, JP, asked me the other day if, like, I had seen, like, how come I didn't have any Lynch on my pivotal film list? It's like, oh, I was never able to get into Lynch. There's not, like, enough emotion. It's just too much, like, in your head. It's too much, like, intellectualism. And this isn't really any different than that. You know what I mean? Like, it's you too, have to you have to process it. It's too stream of conscious in a lot of ways. Yes. Like, he's, he's always said, like, 
a lot of his film ideas come to him through his nightmares after drinking too much coffee and mm-hmm. smoking too many cigarettes. And, you know, th- th- it just feels like a man kind of, I don't want to say vomiting, because uh, that sounds... No, there's uh, definitely a lot of control here. That sounds der- not derogatory. It sounds um, pejorative, but mm-hmm. it is It is what it, it feels a lot of times like he's just kind of like expressing an inner idea. Right. Without well, really any regard for yes. the themes or a hook to get you. They're, they're, they're definitely film experiences and there's yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. things done in terms of, like especially with like Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway, for me in terms of like pacing and sound design that they're cinematically impressive um, in terms of capturing some sort of tension, like in terms of capturing tension yeah. and um, emotion in the sense of like a very primal emotion, a very kind of, um, in terms of it's like a, a vascularity con- to them, like getting you, getting into your skin. Well, it's a confrontational type of emotion because you, the viewing experience is, part of the it's an the adre- film you know what a, i mean yeah. it's an adrenal experience like it ve- it very much feels as though you know the hairs are ready for flight but i on, think on, part of that on is on your skin so one of the things that we'll talk about um later i think in the in, in the podcast not i think but maybe we'll bring this up maybe we won't bring it up um is that it's that movie is you're just watching a movie. You know what I mean? And it's a beautiful movie and it's a powerful movie. But the experience of watching it is not unlike watching literally any other movie. It just happens to be a great movie. Watching a David Lynch film is like a different kind of experience. It is, it's, you can't just sit back and be like, hmm, this movie is happening now. It, it, if it's working, it's doing what you're saying it's doing. You know what I mean? It's, finding weird holes in in your psyche and like getting in there and kind of like burrowing around and messing shit up it feels like a heart palpitation at times it's weird Um, yeah it's not it's not just it's not very it's it's um i don't know but whereas like especially when i think some is like lesser films like inland empire um which have that kind of like they ebb and flow in a certain way where you have like those moments of really stilted odd dialogue which are which are made to be uncomfortable and mm-hmm. weird uh versus like those kind of nightmarish scenes and they kind of like have a dysfunction and they don't really gel perfectly um this kind of takes those odd stilted dialogue and kind of makes it very funny yeah it's um, very funny like it, it contains the same kind of um emotional sense uh the mat uh, character character emotional um sincerity like the emotions being felt by Jack are, are sincere. They're mm-hmm. not, they are not told with any sort of nod to the audience. Like what he's feeling is, is, is real to him and is, is told with that sort of sincerity. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that the way in which that's expressed, the fact that they are, you know, trading back and forth with like, why haven't you drank your coffee? You know? And yeah, you know, I'm not, you think you're <clears> going <throat> to roll a seven and, well, I always think whenever I watch a David Lynch movie, it takes two to tango. I think of, um, oh, we're dancing now. David Mamet in like his his like theories on acting, which is like you just say the line, like you don't do any of the stuff that people say you have to do to get into a character. You literally like that's it's written on a page and you just say it, which it feels like is happening. Here. Which is like, what especially it's, right. like that David Lynch is the person as the detective. He's the you know besides like the 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 quick scene with Emily Stoffel as the waitress. Yeah, um, he is just which is also great. <laughs> he is like the one human character in this, and it, it is just feels like he's 
reading his lines. Like he's he does he does a fine job with it, but you know, I don't know just, that monkey. <coughs> that monkey is very convincing. Which may also may also just be David Lynch doing. Maybe David Lynch doing. It does the, sound like David the weirdest Lynch accent ever with Jack Cruz in quotation marks. Um, but it's. It, it, it really distills the kind of David Lynch experience in terms of that dial. In terms of two characters interacting in a world that is not like our own. But in 17 minutes, if you're not inclined to like David Lynch, this is actually a really good time. You yeah. know what I mean? But I could also see him in another universe, but like just this universe, but maybe in a different year where David Lynch is more inclined to do this, making this movie two and a half hours long. Yeah, and maybe... You know that- what I mean? <laughs> And, I can totally see him doing and that. And at that point, it becomes more of like an Inland Empire or, you know, Richard Kelly trying to do David Lynch sort of experience. Mm. Um, it does have a great musical number, though, that you heard. Like, yeah. That's good. It's, it's, worth a, it's worth a watch. It doesn't feel like 17 minutes. No, if you watched both of the movies we just told you to watch, you're still under two hours there. And you've got you did, did some good stuff. You did some good work. You better, hit all the bases. Better, you will have watched two things that... Uh, I assume Miss Americana is inoffensive, and this is yeah. this is a lot of fun, and you will have uh, still have twenty minutes that you all have saved from the time it would have taken you to watch the fucking Joker. So there you go, and that's it. avoiding watching the Joker by watching anything else should be the goal of most people's existence. And you get twenty extra minutes. You yeah, can do a to do something else. Twenty extra minutes. You could do a good cardio. Like punch yourself in, in the face. Better than watching the Joker. Yeah. Yeah. You could you could refresh your your New York Times homepage a thousand times. Looking at looking at it live check update it, ticker. Check it to see if it creeps up to sixty three percent. And it doesn't. Uh, all right. Well, we will be right back with my number thirty four. <laughs> Welcome back. Oh, um, that bad taste is still there. <clears throat> yeah, me and Mario in the break discovered that um, mixing our the beer, the hulls, the fruit, the, the fruit, fruit kiss, kiss, sour, mixing it with else. some coffee is a bad is a idea. Bad idea. It makes it tastes like what I'd expect watered down battery acid to taste like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not a criticism to the whole beer. Like I said, I like the whole beer. The beer's good. I do not think that the fine people at Holes intended for their sour fruit ale to be mixed. To be drank simultaneously with a hot coffee. No, they just, they did. Or even a cold coffee. I think a cold coffee might be all right because it's not going to be as bitter. Positive. And your tongue kind of is doing something else and then you're putting a sour beer on top of it. It's like, no. Yeah. It just comes out. Um. So we're going to do my number 34. Maybe not fast. We'll see how long it takes. Probably not going to take that long uh, because we have a lot of work to do on Mario's number 34. Um, we talked about Monty Python and the Holy Grail on Mario's list like 30 episodes ago, maybe. I don't uh, even really remember. Even, it was um, um, 11 episodes. 11 list episodes ago. Oh, so really? 11? Yeah. It's, it was it my feels 45. like forever. Oh, man. Um, Probably only been like three months. Maybe, yeah. God, that feels like so long ago. No, um, it had to have been like four or five months. Cause we, yeah. well, it was when Joker came out, so it was October. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. I like how Joker's become like a fucking marker for us. No, I think that was around when Joker came out. Um, my This is my first Monty Python movie. I have two Monty Python movies on my list. Um, it is fitting, I guess, that we're doing this, and it's 100% not on purpose, because if I was going to do it on purpose, I would just would have made this my number 35, so we could have talked about it last week when it happened. Um it is the Terry Jones directed uh, 1979 film Life of Brian. Oh. 
everyone knows the glorious story of the child born in a faraway manger. Well, this isn't that story. This is Monty Python's all-new Life of Brian. Oh, man, I love it. That's one of the great introductory theme songs. And he grew, he grew, and he grew, he grew up to be, he grew up to be a teenager called Brian. Yeah, it's awesome. Awesome. A whole guy's life writing the song there. Um, so we were talking on, we got together for the Super Bowl because we're both huge football fans. Oh, yeah. We just love, love football. football. Um, One of the best stories about that, really quickly, though, was, yeah, was my, okay, going to platform here. We talked about politics, but I'm not going to platform on politics. Fucking NFL. If you're going to do a lot of fan voting of the MVP... Let me vote for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Why wouldn't they let you vote for everybody? Let's see what happens. Like Patrick Patrick Mahomes, he, he won. My, my home, my, my Mahomes. Mahomes, yeah, Mahomes. You know, everyone said I didn't that. I agree uh, with that. Everyone said that, uh, what's his face should have won? Damian Williams. I say Dustin Colquitt, the punter, should have won. Why? Because punters are underappreciated. Hmm. And I'm sure if he didn't punt well once or twice, they probably would have lost. That's true. Actually, if, that's true. If he true. had punted it behind him. The 49ers punter did a bad job. Yeah. Lost the game. Dustin Colquitt. I went to go vote for Dustin Colquitt. You know, inoffensive. I just want I just wanted to be one of the few people to give him a vote because maybe if he saw the results he'd be happy to know he got a couple votes. Couldn't vote for him. Yeah. What the fuck, Adele? This is like the person I saw on CNN last night who went to that caucus site to uh vote for Cory Booker. And then she There's ended a- up turning a bunch of people to like Cory Booker people. <laughs> So, 100% you know. comes out, Cory Booker's going to have won the I.O. caucus. <laughs> awesome. He just re-enters Let's the campaign. Let's do it. I'm ready. Um, we were watching the Super Bowl. We were watching the Super Bowl. We were talking about, we were talking about Terry Jones. We were talking about like a directorial style. Me and you know JP, I think you were making the egg rolls at that point. I was, I was busy with, with food. I was busy with chefing it up. With my hungry boys. <laughs> yeah. Um, hungry guys. Hungry, hungry guys. Um, What's happening to my hungry guys? Hungry but hungry boys also works. Yeah. Um, although there was no Welsh rabbits, so thumbs down, Mario. Um, and they were talking about style and like, does Terry does, they, does Terry Jones even have a style? You know what I mean? Because Monty Python movies are traditionally just look like bigger, longer episodes than or people. I think people think of them, and I think I think of this too. Bigger, longer episodes of like flying circus sketches. You know what I mean? Or just like a series of flying circus sketches uh, stitched together. Terry Jones is kind of interestingly not in a lot of this movie. He plays some very specific characters. He plays Brian Cohen's mother. Brian Cohen, played by Graham Chapman, is the baby who was born next to Jesus um, in Bethlehem on, let's say, December 25th, because that's Christmas. But they don't ever say specifically like December 25th. It's just Christmas, blah, blah, blah. You know. You know how they do. Um, he plays... Um, the one, like the the guy who hasn't talked a lot, who just like is living in a pit. Um, he had a, took a vow of silence, and he's, he eats the juniper bushes. And Brian lands on his foot when he's running away from the gourd horde. Um, 
just he plays a few characters just like that, but just like small stuff, just like just little things. Um, then I'm just we're gonna talk about Terry Jones because he just passed away just recently. Um, but I think this movie benefits a lot from having like Terry Jones at the helm instead of you know the Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam directed. Um, Holy Grail, where everything's just kind of... It is literally a series of sketches that almost have nothing to do with each other, just kind of, you know, attached to each other, and they're they're wearing night outfits. I mean, we're going to talk about Holy Grail again um, later with me, because um, <clears throat> it's vastly more pivotal than this, because that, that gets me to this. Um, but this is, this is almost like a movie. It's almost like a real movie. I mean, it's full of... of all the the best stuff about Monty Python, the non sequiturs and everything, the, the, like the irreverence and the Getting kind launched of... into a spaceship. Yeah. Oh, there's always got to be that. There's always got to be Graham Chapman's always got to fall off of something and land in a spaceship and get you know have a star fight and then crash landing and have a guy that when he walks out of the crash just says <laughs> "You lucky bastard," you know what I mean? You got to do it. You got to do it. Um, but it's really good. It's thematically, it's thematically. Um, Really well put together, and that's a really clumsy consistent, way of saying yeah. it. Consistent. I don't know why I can't think today because I'm fucking tired from watching Taylor Swift movies and looking for election results. Um, it's really You're thematically. Sixty-two percent of the way mentally there, basically. Yeah. Oh yeah, good one, Mario. Um, it's really thematically consistent, um, which helps land what I think are some of the best, most potent, and relevant jokes that Monty Python has like ever made um i grew up on monty python i've talked about this before um i i it's one of these things i've mentioned this when we kind of crossed certain line i was going to say this a lot not 100 percent sure what my life would be like without monty python in it like it's just monty python is a really significant part of my life um life of brian is interesting because it obviously got introduced to it after holy grail i don't know if i got into i don't know if my dad sat me down and said like Let's watch Life of Brian. Because I don't see my dad playing a movie for me at like 12, 13, where you would see a full, like, full frontal nudity from a woman and a man. Like, I just don't think he would show it to me. But we definitely had the video cassette at my house. And I definitely knew who Monty Python was. And nobody stopped me. Nobody said I shouldn't watch it. It's almost like one of those things where they just kind of like put it out. You know, you just put something out and you just kind of walk away from it. And then like, oh, I don't you know, something. You're going to see it. Um, but so there's a couple reasons why this movie's on my list. I think, so the, the penis, Graham Chapman's penis and the full frontal nudity of Judith um, were really like, I don't know. Like, it stuck in my head. I was like, holy shit. I just saw that guy's... <coughs> this is that guy's penis. Like, this... And I'm going to say this again in a couple of weeks. Like, this is the most transgressive movie I've ever seen. Like, this is... This is out there. This is dirty. Um, and then on top of that, it felt dirty. Not just because of the... Not just because of the, like, the genitals, Mario. Not because of the pubic hair. But because... Like you, I spent my whole life going to church up to a certain point. You know what I mean? And you had a certain reverence for church things. 
And all of a sudden, here's this movie that posits that there was another kid born next to Jesus, and his name is Brian Cohen, and his mother doesn't know what Frankincense or Myrrh is, and and the wise men, which is <laughs> one of them, is just John Cleese in blackface, which nobody nobody talks about anymore either. That's okay. Um, of its it was it was of its time, product of its time, Rob. Yeah, I think I don't think I don't think Monty Python would do the blackface these days. Right, they wouldn't be trying to be that. They wouldn't be that type of transgressive. Um, you know, they realize their mistake and they come back and they take the gifts away and they just push Brian's mother over and then she smacks her in the face when he starts crying. Um, those are those are big deals. I mean, that's the beginning of the movie, and then right after that, we go to the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> We're like, Michael, pa- Michael Palin can't hear because Eric Idle's talking too loud and he threatens to punch somebody. Um, and then he punches that woman in the face. <laughs> and then they go to a stoning, Brian and his mother. And, you know, because that guy said Jeho- that halibut was fit for Jehovah. And uh, all the women, the women aren't allowed at the stoning, so they all buy fake beards. And, and they put the fake beards on and they all sound like women when they're talking. And then John Cleese says... Are there any women here? And they all say, no, 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 no. All of this stuff just leads up to what I feel are like the most pivotal. And we heard it in the originals. We heard it in the beginning of this episode. One of the most pivotal scenes for me, and we talk about this a lot, like if we did a pivotal scene list for like our all-time pivotal films. The scene where Brian has a, is escaping from, from the Romans. You know what I mean? And he falls out, the, he falls out that window. And he kicks that guy in the back of the head. He kicks Michael Palin's character, who's just delivering a sermon about losing things. And he kicks him in the back of the head and he falls into that pot. And the people that were standing in front of him, they just clap politely. And then Brian is forced to just make some stuff up about, about you don't need anybody. You don't need to follow any leaders. You know what I mean? Because he, he was just part of the, um, the people's front of Judea. You know what I mean? And... and he doesn't. He doesn't want to follow any leaders. You know, what I mean, everyone can be their own man. So he delivers this. He delivers this sermon. And they're 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 criticizing him, um, but then he says he starts talking, and they all start listening, and then and then he runs away. And they, but they're they're listening. You know what I mean? And and then they follow him into the desert, and he's got a gourd in his hand, and he gives this woman the gourd, and then he's he's running through the desert, and his sandal falls off, and he and he runs away, and they. They find his sandal and they gave him a sign. It's, it's <coughs> contained within that unbelievably hilarious like one minute of, of, of dialogue is like a perfect metaphor of how religions are born and how religions are like weirdly corrupted instantaneously by people that are fervent believers of that religion. You know what I mean? And they just, they are unaccepting of 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 his rationale for that the fact that like it's not real, you know what I mean? Everything's a sign. Everything's like their minds are instantaneously twisted by like this these systems of belief that they're instantaneously concocting like follow the gourd or like take off one shoe or gather shoes in abundance. Um it blew my fucking mind. It totally twisted me up inside. I mean, I don't know. I can't say for certain it's the reason why, like, I started to, like, look really skeptically at, like, everything I was doing on Sundays. I mean, I feel like I, I've gotten to a place where that was going to happen anyway. 
you know what I mean? Where I was just going to kind of, but I, Life of Brian definitely pushed me in that direction. It 100% made me a more skeptical, but I think better human being. Um, on top of all that stuff, it is um, the jokes. Every single joke here lands like perfectly, even the really stupid jokes, like even the pilot stuff um, with the lisp, and then the <laughs> the biggest dickus with like the li- the uh, the other kind of lisp. Um, all that stuff is great. There's you know the classic uh, PFJ speech about the Romans. Um, what have the Romans ever done for us? Um, and, you know, they start saying all this stuff, and they say, except for this and this and this and this. Like, what have the Romans ever done for us? And the guy says, peace. And they're like, oh, peace. Fuck off. And then, like, the what you texted me the other night, Michael Palin hanging in that dungeon when Brian gets spat at in the face. <laughs> and, you know, one of the great jokes about uh, that's the running jokes in this movie is the idea that crucifixion's good. Or that crucifixion's not so bad. It's like, you know, it's a nice afternoon and, you know, someone will come and save you. Um, you know, all that stuff is so, like, weirdly subversive, but, like, so hilarious. I fucking loved it. And even now when I watch it, it doesn't feel just funny. It feels, um, it feels so necessary. It feels like something I need to, I need to keep hearing. I need to keep refreshing. it. I need to be, keep making myself aware of how, um, how ridiculous I find all this stuff. Um, and I think, you know, to pull this back to Terry Jones, um, I think with having one hand on the wheel and having a very clear sense of like what this is supposed to be, and what this is supposed to look like and how you can do all these visual things to like heighten the humor of all this. I mean, this movie is, seems a lot bigger than like Holy Grail. I mean, it's not going to be as well produced as um, Meaning of Life would be, you know, several years later, where, like, those are big production value sketches, and those aren't even attached by a story. It's just, like, a series of sketches. But there's big production value stuff here. This looks cheaply made, but it looks really well done. And it's supposed to be... Things that are supposed to look stupid look stupid, but they look stupid in a way that makes it seem like it's not... Um, it's not bootleg. It's not the Pythons just getting away with something. Like, they, in a lot of ways, they were in, in Holy Grail. You know what I mean? I don't think they do the rabbit in Life of Brian that they do in <laughs> in Holy Grail that bites people's heads off which is just like a stuffed rabbit on a stick. Um, I don't think they do that here. I think I think because they have a clearer vision they it becomes a like an actual movie. Um, but I you've you've obviously seen Life of Brian. You've seen all these movies, I'm sure. Yeah. Um this one you know, I had seen it once when I was just watching um, all three of the Monty Python's back to back because I had just seen Life, of, you know, Holy Grail several mm-hmm. times, um, and so I didn't never saw and now for something completely different. I think I've watched it bits of it. Um, Which means just like a series of sketches, series like that, of sketches. Yeah. But uh, so I watched this and Meaning of Life on the same day, and I despise Meaning. I don't find Meaning of Life funny in in the least. Like there's something just about Meaning of Life that. Is totally a miss for me. Well, it's just um, so dark. Yeah, it's 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 me. It's got like a meanness to it and yeah, uh, a fatalism to it. Um, and this also just it. I don't respond to it as much either. Mm-hmm. Um, I the structure. It's too structured for me. Mm-hmm. And and that that's what misses. I agree with you that it's the most structured and 
most of outside of a few of the non sequiturs, like you know, flying into the spaceship, having the star fight, um, uh, everything ends up being in some way connected to driving the plot board. Um, even you know the biggest dickus and incontinent incontinentia buttocks. <laughs> buttocks. Um, it has just, a wife, you know. Yeah, um, it's it's there to serve the point of the story, and maybe because I just never responded so much to that story. Not necessarily I was offended by it because I don't care, but uh, it just it felt easy for me um, in a certain way, or it felt hmm. kind of just. Um, I don't know. There, there was a certain level of like obviousness to like the jokes that that just kind of missed to me. Like, like obviously, like like pointing out some of the things, not necessarily about religion, but just the, the jokes that were made to the theme of itself were just like, yeah, of course, like those are those are pretty straightforward. And and so the things ended up like connecting with me were kind of those non sequiturs, but they're so like few far in between between driving this plot forward that I just don't respond to. Yeah. That um, this movie. It, it's not a necessarily a huge miss for me, but it's just like it, I remember it more for like the few moments I, I find great. I like I like the spaceship scene. I like when the guy's tied to the wall, you know, with the Romans good people, you know, um, <laughs> and all the stuff with Pontius Pilate, uh, pickpocket, and everyone just shaking their head at the girl. He's a pickpocket. He's a wipist. They just shake their head. Um, like those those parts are like those parts hit the kind of like Monty Python sketch humor I enjoy. But in terms of like the overall story, it feels like a lot of times they, they it, it felt like to me a lot the, the jokes that kind of miss um, are the ones that kind of try to drive it towards the themes. Like that when they charge in the end and all commit mass suicide, it kind of oh, felt the like crack um, suicide, the the Judean people's front. Yeah, yeah. It felt kind of like a rehash of the finale from Holy Grail. Well, they um, do. I mean, so that's ways. one of the things. But it's interesting because they are obsessed with um, the the pythons are obsessed with um, kamikazes. So they do several kamikaze flying circus sketches. Um, oh, what's the Scottish Highlander? Uh, Scottish Highlanders kamikaze squad. So it's set up kind of like the um, the um, tower scene in <laughs> in Holy Grail where. Mm. Um, where John Cleese is rescuing like Terry Jones, he's just all he wants to do is sing, like the huge tracks of land thing, where there's a person that's trapped and these these kamikazes come and they just jump out windows and like they're just trying to save this guy, but they just they're trying to save him just by jumping out a window. You know what I mean they do that stuff like all the time, but I think it's just I think they I found it humorous like from a broader standpoint that thing where they keep mentioning the Judean people's front and I think the Pythons thought in a funny way that people might want to see the Judean people's front. Like it might be interesting to have them actually come. Um, and then they just like sit down and kill themselves and they're dressed as, as you know, samurais and, and, they, <laughs> and they just stab themselves. Um, yeah. It's stupid, but it, it, it just, all that stuff, <coughs> all that stuff just works for me. Like literally everything in this movie works. Um, and I, I, like, I, I don't know. Maybe, it just it, it does feel really claustrophobic in a sense of like I just don't it, it's made for I'd assume for a, a small budget yeah oh my God. Um, but in the same way Holy Grail also probably had those sort of limitations but it feels kind of bigger 
Oh, see, I disagree. I think this one feels way bigger than that one does. I feel like that one, like, I feel like the Castle Anthrax is also, like, every single castle that they shot in front of. You know what I mean? They have just, like, one castle, and they just did everything oh, no, around there sure. and stuff like for that. Oh, for sure. For sure. But it, it just, I don't know. It's maybe, I don't know what it is. It's just... It, You're not, like, required to like No, this. I know, I know. I'm not, I don't dislike, but I'm just trying to see what it is that, like, I respond so much to with Holy Grail... Whereas Life of Brian and Meaning uh, meaning of Life, I could easily say, is just like, it, it's too dark, it's too like nihilistic, it doesn't have a cohesive story, it is just a series of sketches, and so it wears way too long. You can't watch an hour and 20 or so minutes well, so here's of how Monty about this. Python. There's three movies, there's three, <coughs> like, films. Like, and then now for something completely different, it's kind of in the middle of that, but then now for something completely different, it's almost just like a film-length version of like a Flying Circus episode. Yeah, exactly. But Holy Grail is all fun. Life of Brian for me is a, is a lot of fun, but with a kind of a cohesive message running through it. You know what I mean? It's it's about something. Holy Grail is just about making fart jokes and like, you know, <laughs> and blowing and Tim just like lighting fires all over the place and like the rabbit and you know all and stupid so, shit. some of the cleverness of the just, uh, systems of government right, and but just that's like, still silly it's just stupid stuff you know I mean, what i mean it's, it's it's intelligently stupid yeah 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 where meaning of life i think they really try to make points like i think each one of those each one of those <coughs> sketches is supposed to mean something and in in their attempt to really have them mean something and like the humor not just be for fun but like to prove a point it kind of loses its its thread a little bit no so i wonder if if you're um like pushing back a little bit against like the pythons trying to like have a message you know what i mean the inherent messages of it because everything you're saying that you really like is the stuff that's not on point message wise you know what i mean it's just it's just the funny stuff well i guess i guess it's it's also more like, I really hate the always look on the bright side of life finale. I hate it. Why? And I feel as though if you're going to commit to a message like that, you have to more I, – I, you don't have to. I, I would prefer a film that more cleverly weaves that kind of humor, even if it's kind of like the non sequiturs, around that message. Whereas it feels like Life of Brian has these, like, really big – asides of of goofiness or you know randomness that don't really drive towards the story but then you get back on the story and because i like the non sequiturs so much more um just because they're so self-contained and they don't feel regulated to to that that theme um like that the the thematic story feels almost half-baked in a sense it feels as though some of the jokes aren't reaching the plateaus they can. Not, not the, yeah, the pla- the, the uh, zeniths or whatever that they can. Um, plateaus is what it works. Uh, because they have to, like, connect it still. So it feels almost as though there's a degree of missed opportunity. And then we get to always look at the bright side of life. It's a non sequitur that's still connected to the theme. But <clears throat> it's once again kind of continuing that like kind of vein of unsatisfactory endings um purposely unsatisfactory not unsatisfactory of you as a viewer are unsatisfied but like you know you're not going to get the kind of cheery finale you want um 
like actual climax, but it just it feels as though it's, it needs to be necessarily tied to that theme again, and it just it it misses for me. Like a lot of things that tied to that theme miss, and the things that are non sequiturs but are still tied to the theme work like the biggest dickus and whatnot. But because they're not, they're still driving the story forward from a plot standpoint, but they're not thematically doing anything. Mm-hmm. And I think when they try to make the jokes that are thematically purposeful. That's where, like, I feel like there's, like, too much restraint. Like, it feels kind of um, suffocated. See, I don't even... I, I, I don't really want to spend too much time on this because it's just not worth it. But, like, I disagree in the sense that I think, like, something really that's thematically relevant... And I don't even... I don't even want to say thematically relevant in the sense that I think they were making, like... They were trying to change people's minds about Christianity or something like no, that. No, you know what sure. I mean? But I think they were just trying to... Yeah. Juxtaposing the idea of... Um, crucifixion with um, a kind of a kind of process to which there would be a guy with a clipboard who's you know directing people on how best like how to be crucified or how to most easily get to the place where they're going to be crucified you know the so Michael Palin with the crucifixion good uh, first line on the left, one cross each, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he, go, he goes out into the, you know, and then they have the weird Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam thing where like Terry Gilliam is deaf and dumb and, and Eric Idle's got that stutter, but then it turns out like they don't have the stutter. Um, and they could just, they have that normal conversation, which I think is really funny. Um, um, those things getting over a slight cold. Don't those things I don't think are necessarily tied to a like a grand message as much as they are just they're riffs on the idea of how like this might work. And not even like that it like the process of it matters all that much. It's just it's just funny. It's funny to think about crucifixion in that way. And if you're inclined to, to think about that stuff that way, I guess not everyone is inclined to think about like crucifixion being really, <laughs> like really humorous. Um, but it, you know, it's just one of those things. So, um, Life of Brian. Now we will be back with Mario's number 34. Typically, would do an intro for this, but it, I guess that makes it pretty obvious as the film. I don't think it's obvious yeah. to anybody. You don't think so? No. I think I think our listenership would would notice that that fine little number three right there. No, I think you're wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, not the shit on our listeners, but I guess it is pretty, maybe slightly particular. Um, Twenty seventeen for me was disappointing year in a lot of ways with film um mostly because of the fact that a lot of the things i was really anticipating failed to hit the mark shape of water no good was a was a a big was a big miss for me it was a little little shitty um 
you know, I, I'm a very large Guillermo del Toro fan, but uh, Shape of Water didn't didn't hit anything. Um, Dunkirk as a Christopher Nolan fan just was another kind of just I'm gonna say it boring. Dunkirk bores the hell out of me. Um, I think it's I thought it was a impressive technical feat. It's like 1917. Impressive technically. I think 1917 is a better film than Dunkirk, but an impressive technical feat, but still more of like a experience than an actual film. It's like an exercise. Um, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I enjoy a lot, but it did not reach the kind of level that Seven Psychopaths or In Bruges did for me. I over the moon about both of those films. We talked about Seven Psychopaths way back in episode zero, mm-hmm. and In Bruges will be discussed. We'll get in there in a few weeks. Um, you know, and I'd seen I'd seen some movies that 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 kind of hit for me throughout the year. You know, Get Out uh, has we talked about is what I consider um, from a cultural standpoint and from you know an overall film standpoint, kind of possibly the the greatest film of the past twenty years. Uh, Call Me By Your Name is something that I've re- continually returned to and I have a stronger appreciation for it. But there was nothing, nothing that got the smile. Nothing that got the, nothing that connected with me in the moment mm-hmm. in 2017. Nothing that really, nothing that was, I, I go to the films for the experience of the smile sometimes. When I see a really great film uh-huh. and it just, I can't help but, you know. Yeah, I don't feel. You know, and I'm talking. You just, just this, this feeling that's deep, deep in the gut. So, early on in the year, uh, I believe Phantom Thread, which is my number thirty-four, was the film that you had been most looking forward to that year, right? Like, you oh yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. it's just my guy. Um, I and Mother. Yeah, Paul. Th- yeah. And Mother, which, which, is also, which is also a movie I like. But My it, two guys. Mother also didn't hit for me as much as I thought it was going yeah. to. Um, and so I was excited for Phantom Thread. I had really enjoyed Inherent Vice um, more than you had. Like, more than I think most people had until, like, recently when people are starting to say Inherent Vice is better. Well, I think they're just, I think they're obligated to because of the Joaquin Phoenix thing. They're just like, oh, yeah, he was very good. But from day one, I was like, oh, I love Inherent Vice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe that's because I hadn't read the Pigeon book. Well, I just think uh, my problem with the Advice is that I have a relationship to, I have a relationship to that book. I have a relationship to Pigeon. It's, it was too dark. It was just, it was much darker than I think it, than Inherent Vice had any right to be. Hmm. Um, and I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson at that point could make a non-dark movie. But I remember having this conversation with you about like Robert Downey Jr. being um, in line to play. Um, the Joaquin Phoenix role and Doc Sportello and just being like, well, that is fucking perfect. That would be fucking perfect because he's got that, you know, as we, as I saw in Doolittle, he's got that kind of dark charm about him. You know what I mean? Where Joaquin Phoenix has no charm. He would, he would have been whispering while slapping Catherine Larson in the ass. (laughs) Why you do it? Do it like that. (laughs) (laughs) But so I was excited for Phantom Thread because I've always appreciated Paul Thomas Anderson as a director. Um, but none of his films had ever... I didn't expect anything from it emotionally. I well, didn't expect anything from it as a film goer. I expected to be impressed by it as a film, mm-hmm. but I didn't expect to have an emotional... You know, Master, I think, is a great film. Didn't hit me. Magnolia doesn't hit me. 
Boogie Nights to a degree does. There will be blood. I appreciate it as a great work of film, but it never really emotionally. It didn't make me smile during it. It didn't. They they were intellectual experiences. They were things where I was like, that is a fine piece of cinema. That is a a, a piece of art that I'm so emotionally detached from. And so I kind of went into Phantom Thread expecting the same sort of disconnect, you know. And and I felt as though, to a degree, there was almost something wrong with. You know, as, as, a, as a big film goer, it, it feels almost like an obligation to have that sort of emotional relationship to the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. Maybe just a, yeah, it's just a circle of people I've surrounded myself with. My friends back in Reno, who are huge film goers, like, were fucking obsessed with Paul Thomas Anderson. I come out here, and then this fucking guy across from me was in love with Paul Thomas but Anderson. I'm di- but I'm different, because I... I um... I don't really react to them on the same way that I think a lot of people react to them. Like I'm not like a a parser of a parser of hidden images and 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 messages and shit like that. Like I think people put a lot of shit on top of Paul Thomas Anderson. No, I, I they agree. read a lot of garbage out of his movies that I don't really think is there. They just really want to see it. I agree. And I came into this kind of expecting to miss it again, to be impressed by it but to miss it. Mm-hmm. And I will admit, I don't parse a lot of messages or themes out of this. I, what The messages and themes of this film are kind of there on the surface. You know, the entire yeah. talks of hallucinations or of curses or whatnot. Like, showing never cursed immediately before he has the hallucination of his mother is, is very much on the nose. But in terms of truly having an emotional experience with the pacing the look, the sound, the performances of the film, having that, having a master craft maker, several master craft makers of their, of their work, you know, in Johnny Greenwood, in Daniel Day-Lewis, in Paul Thomas Anderson, and as it turns out, in Vicky Kreps and Lizzie Manville, who hadn't been on my radar before then, mm-hmm. having that and having the experience of just feeling fucking good because I'm watching a near perfect piece of cinema, and we'll talk about why it doesn't show up in my top twenty of the decade of the past twenty years near the end of this review, made me feel a deep emotional experience I hadn't felt in twelve years. The last time I had been that excited about a film was Batman Begins. It's weird, but I had never smiled as much as I did. With Phantom Thread. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? Yes. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. 
and I have given him what he desires most in return. <laughs> Reynolds Every Woodcock piece of me. Master fashion dissatisfied with his relationship with his newest muse and his sends her away. His sister, Cyril, tells him to take his mind off of matters and go to his country house. He's, you know, has a lot of finickiness and... He has an uneasy feeling. Uneasy feeling. Um, and he's, he's plagued by superstitions and, you know, just general sort of Oh, God, what, what would necessarily be the word? Um, immaturity and inability to kind of deeply relate with the world around him. Um, he, he goes to um, the countryside where he sees Alma, a waitress. A, a German, I assume we would assume, waitress. You know, she's foreign. Um, yeah, I mean, and they, and she's, they intimate later that she's probably Jewish. Yeah. Um, so, and that she has some relationship to the war in some way, so probably. He is impressed by her memorization of a complex uh, breakfast request, and um, he sees his next muse. He, we learn that he's kind of had this history of weaving women in and out of his life to be kind of like mannequins or muses for his ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, Alma. A relationship develops, and Alma and him go back to London, uh, where she, you know, becomes part of his workhouse, as it were to be. Um, but, you know, she notices that Reynolds is very particular, aloof, childish in many ways, and uh, a brat, a brat, as it were. Um, Reynolds gets uh, a request for a wedding dress for a Belgian princess, and you know, starts planning that. Uh, Alma, though, trying to deepen the relationship, offers to create a romantic dinner, which sets off Reynolds, um, you know, realizing that she has disrupted the normalcy of his uh, life. And he starts, um, you know, the normalcy of his life, and he starts, like, realizing that maybe it's time for her to move on. But she poisons his tea with some mild mushrooms and he collapses and destroys, partially destroys the dress. <clears throat> Everyone must work overnight in the dress, and he has an hallucination of his mother yep. as he's ill. And Almond slowly nurses him back to health, and Reynolds kind of places Alma into the position of his mother um, and asks her to marry him, and she accepts have a honeymoon but Reynolds starts getting aloof again and angry and frustrated and tells his sister that he's gonna you know it's time to get rid of her um you know uh they travel back to the country houses Reynolds is planning to end this foray and Alma decides to poison him again putting some of those mushrooms in his omelet looks good looks good looking omelet yeah he knows how to do food crafting. Uh, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson. Reynolds, as he eats the omelet, and stares at Alma. I keep wanting to say Vicky. <laughs> say Vicky. <laughs> and stares at Alma, has a, a epiphany, a realization that Alma's been poisoning him, been making him weak and suffering and malleable to her hands. And he accepts that role. 
accepts her new position of Alma as a substitute for his mother. And the relationship flourishes, and she imagines a life of social development and children and happiness as his partner. She knows there's going to be some difficulties as the two have very different kind of styles of how life, but, you know, they'll overcome it. Um, you were going to say something. I just said, like, as I say, this movie, just watching it made me smile. What did um, you say? Well, I said, I said it was going to make me smile, and you said you were going to say something to that. Do you remember, do you remember? Oh, just, I mean, just, just working. I think I was just saying that it, it worked. Like, as you're watching it, you can... Um, it's just it's just working on every level, um, except for one, which for me, which is like we, we don't have to talk about like right this second, but um, I I figure it's the same that doesn't work for me. Well, uh, I I don't we don't I don't know we'll <coughs> we'll get there I suppose like organically, but until you realize what that thing until I realize what that thing is, you're just kind of like holy shit, um, because it doesn't look it looks like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Because it just moves like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It feels like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. He does do the cinematography in this. There's a, well, I mean, so he'll put, I guess he's been, I listened to a bunch of interviews with him at the time and he pushed back on that. He's pushed back on that a lot. Oh, really? Where it's, so it's Robert Elswit couldn't, couldn't, his traditional cinematographer couldn't shoot this movie. So him and Michael Bauman. What was Robert Elswit was busy with three billboards, right? Yeah. Yeah. So him and Michael Bauman, um, his, the camera operator and, um, oh, yeah, I've heard that. The, the camera operator. So kind of. this, like, a four, Paul Thomas Anderson, Michael Bauman, and then, like, um, the, lighting. the lighting guy and this other the guy great, yeah. um, all just kind of collaborated on, like, getting these shots. And they just thought they could, they just thought they could do it. And I think one of the things that he said, which I noticed, but listening to him talk about other movies, so, like, Inherent Vice, they shot on, like, really shitty film stock. Like, that's how they, one of the reasons, the ways they got it to look, like, have the feeling it did. He he said that they, they didn't use a lot of um, digital effects. They just used a lot of like smoke to make everything seem kind of vaguely hazy and like to manipulate the lighting. They did a lot of like um, they did a lot of um, practical effects to get things to look the right way. And you can you one hundred percent can feel that shit in this movie. You know what I mean? This is a this is a um, like a moving living. Um, statue like or diorama of a film it's it's so perfect it's so precise it's so um there is a a a kaleidoscope of color and of depth that i think well, like wes anderson would wish to capture yeah the de- that, that entire sequence um at the ball where you get those balloons and everything separated. yeah the sen- and it's not necessarily the set production design of that but there's like a depth to so that color. The way color. it's captured, and yeah. it's there's a sensual. There, for me, there's a sensual depth to this stuff where everything seems like not. I don't. And I don't mean this like in a three D movie type of way. Everything seems really vivid and real. Like even just stupid stuff, like everything on a breakfast table. You know what I mean? The way that, um, the bre- like when they're the way, yeah, the when way they're he cups breakfast. his hand around his little lap saying tea bowl you know what i mean you can almost feel 
what that must feel like in your hand watching it with his like the pen never leaves his fingertips and he's got his hand wrapped around it and he tips in he tips the pot in slowly and then he picks up the bowl and like you can almost feel all that stuff you can almost when it's there's tangible food, there's yeah, a real tangible really, quality but you don't get that out of a lot of movies and he's operating it's weird and it's weird that this movie is it's actually not weird. I know why it's not on my pivotal film list. But it's weird that I don't respond to this movie better because while you're watching it, you just feel like Paul Thomas Anderson's working like at the top of his game. Even though I, he's worked at a toppermost part of his game, I think, in other movies. Um, he's doing something different here. He's actually doing something way different than I think anybody else could do in like modern cinema. Like I think Alfonso Cuarón tried to do something very similar with Roma and he just didn't get it because everything was a fucking trick. Yeah, everything that, there's no tricks flat. here. No. And and what I think what I said to you one drunken day, I think after the Oscars or that year after the 2018 Oscars. That was a sad one. We we're talking about Phantom Thread. The Phantom Thread. We're talking about Phantom Thread. But the thing I really respond to this movie is cadence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um this is his first movie at Dillian Titchener since uh, there will be blood, um, he didn't work with him on Master or Inherent Vice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he worked on Boogie Nights and Magnolia. But there's a cadence to it, a cadence, a, a beat to that, to this film. And I can't necessarily tie down that beat, but everything ebbs and flows like a dance. Like there's a musicality to its movements, an effortlessness, a, a float, not a floatiness, but a, but a necessary kind of progression. Everything has a particular sort of tempo, and that's important because, like, the one major thematic thing of this film is is the manipulation and and, and the dance that Alma and uh, Reynolds have. You know that that pull and tug of control in the relationship, of you know uh, emotional boundaries and and physical boundaries being pulled and tugged. And to me, this the thing that I responded so much with. You know, leading to that masterful. If we're talking about pivotal scenes list, that you know, I want you on your back. Yep. You know, scene um, is is the cadence there, and it it perfectly underscores, you know, that emotional pull and tug. And you know, like like when, you know, when um, when Cyril kind of enters it, it it kind of it the beat changes in a way, mm-hmm. um, the tempo changes in order to play to her also kind of. You know, manipulating. Well, because it's actually that I would argue that the tempo changing is, and you can see it in the um, the fitting scene, the first fitting scene, um, when when he's fitting Alma, when he's fitting when? Alma, when he has her like upstairs in like yeah. the country house, and you know he's she's got her in just in just her slip, and and he's he's laying fabrics on her, like really slowly, and then like slowly pulling them off, and then he lays another one on, and he steps back. And there's definitely and, like a sensuality to that, not not like, a sexualness, but no, a sensuality. No. Like but a he's real... like you know, looks good, you know. Yes, it's that you know. There's like that's tactile. very nice, it's very tactile. But then when Cyril comes, it's it the the tempo shifts, and not because she's a disruptor, it's because the temp, it's a different tempo between Alma and um, Reynolds and. Cyril and Reynolds. So Cyril and Reynolds operate on this like quick back and forth. They know what each other's thinking. He doesn't have to tell her which part of the body he's measuring. He just says numbers to her and she writes them down in a row and like they'll know exactly what everything is. You know what I mean? It's a different kind of it's a different kind of tempo. And that's where you want, you know, 
if you like that sort of thing, Daniel Day-Lewis in your movie, because he can do that stuff. He can switch. It's almost like a code switching thing, where he can, in the cor- in between, like in the course of a scene interacting between two different characters, he can switch how he interacts with them and make it feel totally so totally organic that you don't even really know what's happening. But he's like, my relationship to this person is this. My relationship to this person is this. How can I? best describe that it's not like i'm going to talk the same way to everybody like a good actor might i'm going to i'm going to switch how that feels i'm going to switch the like the actual physical relationship between these two people and it's not stupid stuff like saying like hello my old so-and-so or whatever you know what i mean it's an actual like physical relating to that other person in that space yeah it's it's a there is an aloof an aloofness or kind of like a a certain level of professional, like like professional, like uh, detachment when he's kind of fitting Alma, mm-hmm. and like his body language opens up when Cyril gets there, and like when he's talking with Cyril, there's like more of like a hunch to like his, just his, just his natural like posture and everything. Well, just as soon because as, as soon as she gets there, um, Vicky, uh, Vicky, Alma says something. You know, he has to just stand up straight and and because. Or stand like how you were standing. And she's like, how was I standing? He's like, stand like you were before. And he's like, well, how I am standing. He's like, stand up straight. He's like, well, you could have just said that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, they're having the whole time before that. He's making all these demands of her. He's requesting things of her. He's, like, telling her what to do. Like, keep a picture of your mother with you always. Um, you know, he takes the lipstick off of her. But you never get the sense that there's any kind of... Like, there's not a uncomfortableness between them she seems perfectly comfortable like letting him do all this stuff but as soon as Cyril gets there like there's another presence in the room and everything kind of goes like screwy Daniel's kind of changed ah Daniel Daniel Plainview (laughs) it's the same guy um Reynolds has changed but she has not recognized the change yet um, yeah. So she's still like hoping, and this is just this one scene, but I think it happens in all the scenes where she's hoping that she can, like, that this this is going to keep going this way, and then it just doesn't keep going, and she has to she has to adapt herself. No, exactly. To it. There's there's because like that's that's done really well when you're comparing that that final scene, or even like, I, th- I think there's like a trio of scenes that work well to kind of like this ultimate kind of realization um, of. You know, there, there's a certain kind of s- abruptness, or um, there's a certain kind of like dissonance in the initial kind of like romantic dinner sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, like the making with the butter or whatnot versus oil with <coughs> the asparagus. Um, you know, like the, like that's that's there's there's a temp the tempo there's off. It's it's kind of it feels askew slightly. My tempo would also be off if I went to dinner wearing pajamas and a vest and a jacket and an ascot. <laughs> why um and then there's kind of like that revelation that realization where she's fitting the dress and sees the never cursed thing mm-hmm. leading into her caring for him and then when it gets to that final scene again with the omelet well i keep saying the final scene because it should have been um you know that tempo is kind of it's it's relaxed it's it's it is perfectly sound but it's relaxed because now there's a comfort there's there's a complete removal of the veil that has existed between them that that dis, dissonance that was there earlier you know even though the cut the cuts and the the framing of each not the framing but the um the speed of which everything's going is it's near the same it it, it flows more it it feels 
Yeah, well, there's... Natural. Yeah, you get... Um, because they know each other really well. And because they well, know... Well, everything's been pulled apart. Like, she now knows what he needs. He now knows what she's willing to do to provide those needs. Well, so it's it's odd. It's not a facsimile anymore. It's, it's a true understanding of their deepest... Well, and I think so. Here's Desires one of the things that I think that has not been expressed a lot, and maybe just because I haven't read enough stuff about it, but that I think he thinks that he is very difficult. I think he has like a general, which is that's not the thing that I'm saying. Um, that I think I haven't heard a lot of people say. He obviously understands that he's a difficult guy. Um, I think there's an unspoken um, knowledge in his head that no one could ever figure him out. Like, he's unfigureoutable. Yeah. And so he never thinks that she's ever going to be comfortable. You know what I mean? He thinks that she's always going to be, you know, one of his cast-off muses. You know what I mean? And they always end up in the same position, which is, or, or I guess we could assume, they always end up in the same position, which is they want, they just want, want, want from him because he doesn't give them anything, and that makes them uncomfortable. And they do things that he's asked them not to do, and they're just kind of always butting up against each other. But now there's this woman who he knows is doing is gonna do something to him. I mean, his his facial expressions with his glasses hanging off his face and like him slouching back in that kind of brown like that brown gold glow while he's watching her cook and he's just in the shadows, you know what I mean? But when they do the close-up of his face, that face is like an amazing face. He fucking knows some shit, but he doesn't know how... He doesn't feel good, you know what I mean? But they are so comfortable with each other. She knows him perfectly. She like can read him like a fucking book, you know what I mean? To the point where she can do the thing that she did... Um, and know that it is what he needs to be like the best version of himself. With he's gotten himself into such a place that he needs this kind of um, life and death tension to like be the best version of himself. But I think there's a lot of that revelation in that final omelet chewing. That like he doesn't he she hasn't confirmed it yet that she's poisoned him. We know that he thinks that she's poisoned him because he, you know, he smells the yama, he looks suspicious at her, he points the fork. Um, but I think part of the revelation in there and part of like in the facial expressions is him coming to grips with the fact that like maybe I don't know this girl as well as she knows me. You know what I mean? Like he's he's been he's been had somehow. Like she's 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 won something. I don't know. Um, like what the exact wording would be of that, um, but he realized that he's up against someone like formidable. <coughs> he's up against like another like a weirdo pseudo self type of thing. You know what I mean? Who's just as stubborn and difficult as he is, but in a totally different way. Yeah, in a way that he's been craving all along. He's been he's been difficult, and his history has been to have women trying to appease him are to um, act childish themselves, whereas her response is to just take control of the situation and, and we'll, break him. And, and uh, so that's where I think the... Um, that's where I think the movie breaks down, is in, in that idea, and it's broken down in the next five minutes of the movie. 
where I think he tried to establish that. Paul Thomas Anderson tried to establish that, and he fucking succeeded. And then he kept making a movie for no reason. And then he just threw all that shit that he had just worked two hours to establish perfectly out the goddamn fucking window. And it's like so... I find it so frustrating. I find those extra scenes um, just insanely irritating that they exist. Um, But yeah, I mean, I... um, so now you said something about this movie not being on your pivotal film. Like you were going to say why it wasn't on your pivotal film. Like your not top, 20, top of the, 20 of the of the century so far. And it's the same reason you just said. I think this film ends with should end with Kiss Me My Girl Before I Am Sick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You end that film there and it's um well because it's, it's a masterpiece of film. Like I I right. the preceding 115 or so minutes before that are just phenomenal there's there's nothing in there that i excise there's nothing everything even if there's scenes that feel unnecessary before then um they're all building they're all building this pace to this moment um yeah pace is a good one because there's there's a bunch of scenes that seem like like i'm thinking about the gas station scene when he pulls up into that gas station on his way to the country house mm-hmm. and it just lingers there on the sign even though he like doesn't come back out right away it just kind of like hangs out there and you wonder why, and it's because of pacing. It goes right to your pacing point. Yeah, and um, after that, it um, just continues. And it shows you like him sick in the toilet. And then it continues her discussions with Hardy, kind of like leading into that, you know, which the entire Hardy discussion. Robert Hardy character is kind of unnecessary overall for me. Well, I, think uh, I don't she, think we need an in to hear her. I, th- I think we can we could figure out her mental state just without that. Um, but and I think then he wants her... the opening, and I think he has to just he has to <coughs> Which justify that opening somehow. But I, I don't think we need it. You know? No, we don't need it at all. It's fine that she's talking to somebody for some reason, mm-hmm. um, and you get like her kind of imagining the life together. It's like we know that that's what's coming. Him saying "kiss me, my girl" before I'm sick is his submission. To this being his life. Well, so that's... To him being yes. satisfied with the fact that, like, he has found the person who is no longer the muse, but who fulfills that kind of need for him to be never cursed. Who fulfills that hole that has been his mother forever. Yeah, we, you know? we could we could talk about that, because I have questions about that mother, like, substitute thing. Because I'm don't, I don't not 100% sure I, I necessarily see that, but I think... The thing that I, I like, I'll agree with you one hundred percent. I mean, it's on that, not on maybe that. not a mother substitute, but more like somebody that's going to put him more to task, to his hardness, to his difficulty. Mm. I just think that if it ends with "Kiss Me, My Girl" before I'm sick, we've he's established that the equilibrium in Reynolds' life has changed. You know what I mean? That it's no longer um, the house of Woodcock as we've as we've seen it. You know what I mean? And that has played a lot, too, with the, relation, the change in the relationship between Reynolds and Cyril, um, which is inspired by Alma's willingness to disregard... Reynolds' eccentricities and his demands and just kind of doing what she wants to do and doing what she feels like she 
she needs to do it really does drive a wedge between um, Reynolds and Cyril. But in those extra scenes, um, imagined or, you know, things that are definitely to come, we get a sense that all that work that just got done, like all that real good emotional work, Alma is just... An, she's just a part of the life that Reynolds already leads. You know what I mean? Like, his business hasn't changed. You know what I mean? His desires haven't changed. He's still making dresses. Um, he's still putting... The you ghost know, is back. The ghost is back. Um, well, maybe the ghost will fry some chicken. Because the ghost seemed to do that a lot <laughs> back in the day. Remember the ghost that was frying chicken literally all the time? Um, Cyril's still like on the on the outside of that that thing. You know what I mean? Like everything's actually the same. It just now includes Alma. Mm. It's the same life, and she's living it. That's why that speech in the beginning is so problematic because it's like, oh, he he's. I've given him every piece of myself. He's given me the life I've dreamed. So it's, it's his life. You know what I mean? He's given her the life she's always dreamed of. And she's given herself over to him. But in that last moment, she takes control of that. You know what I mean? She, she completely disrupts his whole worldview. And he, and he accepts that. He accepts her version of reality. But then the movie just goes on. And it's it's not that version of reality. It's just the same version of reality, except that she poisons him every once in a while. You know what I mean? No, exactly. It's just, and my problem with this, this, ultimately my problem with this movie, which I love, is that this movie has no subtext. This movie is, like you said earlier in your thing, is all surface. And I think one of the reasons that this score gets, which the score, I love the score, and I have a couple of thoughts on the score in relationship to this movie as well, I think the reason that people are so high on the score is because it almost, almost provides subtext for this movie. Like, without saying anything, it provides, like, a weird psychic darkness which doesn't exist in this film. But he's, he, like, Johnny Greenwood is so, this is, this is like, this is such a thrilling piece of music um, that... It almost makes you think there's more going on here than there actually is going on under the surface of everything that's happening. The only <coughs> scene, you know, the go, you know, him seeing his 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 mother, like the never cursed scene, is the one scene, and it's a it's it's one of the two classic scenes in this film, um, like all time classic film scenes, um, is is breathtaking because of that score. You know what I mean? Those little those little pops. I mean, it's it's shot beautifully. Also, um, it's conceived beautifully, but you get those that score turns it into something else. The score almost turns every totally emotionally empty scene into something else. And see, that's that's what's funny is I agree. There's no subtext to this film. It's I don't want to say it's flat, but it's it's emotionally apparent. Like there's like Richard Brody wrote this entire review where he's telling like, oh, that last scene, not the last scene, but the scene. Um, of the poisoning mm-hmm. with the omelet is like the tumultuous relationship. I think he said of like the creator and the artist. Or I, I've read stuff like that too, and I totally <laughs> I disagree with that it, shit. No, it's just like a, it's just about a, a mutually abusive relationship between two people, you know, between two really fucked up people. But the reason that I respond to this so much 
is because it doesn't feel like it needs to earn anything. It's just a t- story being told by filmmakers yeah. who are really fucking good at what they're doing. And like the Johnny Greenwood score to me doesn't necessarily add a depth or an emotional like um, darkness to anything. It just complements what I'm seeing on the screen. See, I disagree. I and actually don't think it does complement what I'm seeing on the screen. <coughs> I think really? It, I think it like, I think it, I think it like buries it. I think it like subsumes it. I think without this score, if the score was different at all, I think this movie works so much less. It works. No, but I would agree. But I think if anything is taken out of this, it works so much less. I think if... if well, yeah. If, well, so, I mean, so that... If I think... Dylan Titchener is not doing your editing for you, it works less. You know, if you don't get that, that, that collaboration of technical, you know technicians kind of there creating the images it works less if you don't get the casting of like Vicky Kreps or whatnot it works less I think well, the reason I respond to this so much is it feels like this masterful collaboration of cinema it feels like not, I don't want to say a beautiful accident but it feels as though no, there's think, it's, it's, a, it's a Lego creation it's a fucking like like the Harry Potter the book, Lego creation or like, like something you made up yourself no like like a by the book sort of like technical piece of Art. See, but here's what I would say to that. And it's like a collaborative technical piece of art. I don't just point to Paul Thomas Harrison and be like, and like Danny, 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 Danny Day-Lewis, Danny. and Daniel Day-Lewis and be like, oh, these two men created this. I look at fucking everything in this. Every single like piece from the production designs, the yeah. costumes, the score, the, you know, the main three lead performances, um, the direction, all of it came together to create this movie that just makes me feel really fucking good because I'm watching this really solidly piece, this piece of cinema that outside of its like need to continue on for 10 minutes, I look at everything and just be like, this is fucking working to complement this. This is holding up this. This is holding up this. It is the brick house uh, without a keystone. You know, every single that's, part that's of problematic, it. problematic though. Every single part of it, if you remove it, um, like everything falls apart. Well, to so me. everything falls apart. In my little introductory essay to my number, my like twenty best films of the century, I made this point that like film is, you know, take it back to Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift could go into a studio with nothing, and she could just sit down with this guy and be like, "Oh, sing," and he could put a beat behind my favorite it. Favorite Taylor Swift song. <laughs> she could put a beat behind it, and then she could be like. Oh, here's some lyrics about boys Music. being girl, mean to girls and girls overcoming, blah, 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 blah. And then you could put some guitars over that and she could put some harmonies over that and then she could put some other words over that and then, like, oh, you got a song. There's a song. You know, you do that. You can't do that in movies. You can't just show up. <coughs> and so I make the point in my thing, like, can Claire Denis just, like, invite a bunch of people to build whatever and then invite a bunch of people to, like, write whatever and invite a bunch of people to just kind of act however they want to act like in this whatever environment and just like you know it was like would that be good probably pretty good because claire fucking Denis, she could make anything good you know what i mean and i get that sense i actually get that sense with this movie i this movie seems really like very very hollow to me it seems like and listening to Paul Thomas Anderson talk about it, it seems ill. It seems not ill considered. It just seems not. Um, oh, what's the word? 
What's the word for something that's like... Like the way you want it. It's... Uh, I don't know. I have, there's a fucking word. It's, but it seems... Not the way you want it? It seems... Um, Good. This, this is good. Podcasting. This is good podcasting. I'm, I mean, you can Seems hear me. Th- I think you can hear me thinking really hard. I can. It. I can smell the, the smoke. It is not. The movie seems flat because it seems emotionally flat because it is just a opportunity. No, no, because it's just full of things that are good ideas. They just have a lot of good ideas. And Paul Thomas Anderson is a genius. And Daniel Day Lewis is a genius. And Leslie Manville is a genius. Um, Vic- Johnny Greenwood. Johnny Greenwood is a fucking genius. Dylan Titchener. Vic and Creeps is like so. I always point to the like the pivotal dinner scene. You know what I mean? She's made the asparagus with butter and he's dipping it in, <coughs> and then um, you know he's like, "What is this, Alma?" And then she's like, "I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just waiting for you. I'm just waiting around like an idiot." And then he's like, "Waiting for what?" And then that scene is. I have to imagine that scene is largely improvised. You know what I mean? Because it seems largely improvised. Because Vicky Creeps just says the same thing she just said over again. And then when she has the conversation about like the game, oh, it's all a game. The the this and the and the and the and, and the clothes and the money and all this other stuff. She's and then Daniel Day Lewis has got all these really awesome considered things like where is your gun? Like are you do, are you sent here to kill me? Like what you know. What is exactly is the nature of my game? Like she was clearly supposed to say game, and he's you know clearly going to say like what precisely is the nature of my game, but she is not up. She's not up to the task of making his lines make any sense. He is not just being antagonistic. He's being like purposefully. It seems like he's being purposefully obtuse, and the reason for this is because it's not. It's the scene isn't integrated into an emotional. Um, into an emotional narrative. The scene is integrated into just a, a a screenplay narrative, in a beat narrative. Like, we need a break here. You know what I mean? Mm. We need an inspiration for the next stage of this relationship to take place. Um, for her to do the thing where she ends up poisoning him and she sees his, you know, the ghost mother and asks her to marry her, and blah, 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 blah. Um, there's all these things underlying everything. And it, it like... They keep they drop all these hints and they're very mo- in the script they're very movie hints you know what I mean like the idea that um, Alma's Jewish you know what I mean but think about this for a second um, so Alma's Jewish I have to imagine that if this was a very carefully considered movie that this would relate. this idea would you know the idea of you know selling visas to the Jews during the war and the fact that we're not that far removed from the war we're in London you know what I mean yeah um he's making a dress for a Belgian princess Belgium was part of the war they entered the war in 19 in, uh, in 1940 um he made for the Belgian princess her baptism gown he made her I forget there's another gown he made her dresses for coming out at court he made like what he said he made like the entire wardrobe for her <coughs> for her appearance at court a lot of those things are taking place during the war. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's like a there's a real serious like class divide here that is largely unexplored and I think it's weird when Cyril's just like Barbara Rose pays for this 
like this house, you know, that um, the American who ends up marrying the, the Dominican for whatever reason. Um, but that's not 100% true. You know what I mean? It's like the war. If Barbara Rose, I'm assuming they're intimating she's like a war profiteer, right? Which would mean like the war paid for that house somehow. The fact that he was able to maintain and build his business. I mean, he's not a, a young man, so he's been doing this for a long time. His mother taught him his trade. He made that dress when he was a teenager. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's got to be 40 years ago. He's uh, been building this business all during the war. You know what I mean? That's got subtext to it. You know what I mean? But it's unexplored. It's totally unexplored. What's the bad thing about Reynolds? The bad thing about Reynolds is that he's really demanding and he likes to drink tea and not have toast eaten very loud when he eats breakfast. You know what I mean? That's, that's, his, toast, that's his demands. Um, that's why he's difficult. But there's all this other stuff that they could have... I think they just put it in there because they needed to put some stuff in there. But, yeah, I, but I, I, see, not like, I see it as it being 1950s because it just they wanted to make it 1950s. But that's, so what I'm saying, and what I kind of I wrote about, like just kind of processing through my thoughts, um, you know, it's based. He kind of based Reynolds like on a guy, um, but it's not. It's it's not like the same thing as like the uh, Lancaster Dodd and L. Ron Hubbard relationship. It's just they just based. You know, they didn't steal his identity per se. They just kind of based, you know, his life on this guy's. Like, the nature of his life on this guy's life. This movie needs a mythology. You know what I mean? Reynolds is nobody, as far as we're concerned. He just made him up. And he feels made up, to me. Because there's no... It's, his, his character's not attached to anything real. And what's funny is, I agree, I don't fucking care. Yeah, it's just... Because it's I, like, I, I see that and just go like, that's fine. This is... It feels like a cinematic... Um, experiment. It feels like as though it's a, a film created as a collaboration that is just meant to evoke a certain sense of feeling in the sense of of just a, a film experience in the sense of like, this is what happens when, yeah, we take an idea that's like, has no subtext with characters who are just there to serve the point of the tale being told. It feels as though these people start and stop existing in the 130 minutes yeah that yeah yeah that's there. good yeah that's a good point but we're gonna make a fucking movie out of it and the movie's gonna be like this just self-contained beast unto itself and like i don't go into that going like oh i want more i want depth i'm just like this is fucking ridiculous see this my is, problem this is intensely for something that is ultimately hollow from a thematic and you know, from a depth of story perspective, it fucking works as a move. It fucking works as a piece of art. And so I'm confronting this on the fact that <clears> I, I see it as like a dress. Yeah, it has no, I mean, that's ultimately why I see that. It has I, no purpose. It's just, it's, 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 it exists it, for this moment. And then it goes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's there. I think that's actually the perfect yeah. way of saying it. It just, it exists in this, this, this single moment, but you're astounded by its beauty, but beneath the surface, it's there for the ball. You and know? so I would argue that my relationship with this is based on the fact that I think he's done this type of thing, but with more emotional depth and um, better than he did with this. Well, I think it's so this I is, think this is like I could... love this movie, but it's not There Will Be Blood. It's not The Master. It's not even like Magnolia is an experiment, too. And Magnolia is literally like a movie that is 
crying for itself I mean, for I'm gonna, 240 I'm gonna minutes. This, I'm going to show this list to you and be like, outside of my number 21, every other film that we're going to talk about is just what I consider great pieces of cinema. I have, I don't, my emotion, I have deep emotional attachments to them, but not because like they emotionally resonate with me, but just because the experience of film itself. Of, of a movie that is just so fucking well crafted, emotionally resonates with me. Like it, yeah. it's 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 staring and on a piece of art. Well, it's funny. Like, so. I don't have actually as we climb up my list. I don't have any of those. If I didn't, if it didn't emotionally <coughs> resonate with me on an emotional level, because there's I you I think we will probably argue about like the quality of some of the films that are like higher up on the list. People are actively arguing now. I think over the quality of some of the films that are like higher up on my list. But they are emotionally resident, like to me. I can't speak to their film quality. That stuff doesn't. I don't yeah, really care. Yeah, that's my thing. Like, like I. It, it's funny, and this is the the interesting part of this podcast is, is. When it comes to art, um, like outside of literature, I emotionally respond to what I believe to be mastery, of that particular craft. Like, I feel that labor of love in that like I, I emotionally respond to the fact that a person worked their ass off and bled on something oh, that see, may be ultimately va- like vapid yeah I don't give a shit about that stuff but like if they do it extremely well and hit it I'm like you fucking did it and like I, I just I it, that well I think I can appreciate it feels deeply it doesn't, I, I don't cry over it it just feels deeply satisfied yeah see and that's the thing I feel deeply unsatisfied when I, when I confront that shit because it is, I want there to have been like an exploration of, like an emotional depth, like drawn out of that stuff, <coughs> rather than just like the aesthetic, like experience of it. I just dem- I, as as an art consumer, like I demand that stuff. Like I got no time for anything that's just like expertly done, um, because it doesn't do anything. It do- like what it doesn't do anything for me. Um, I have to have it's, – it's, like, one of the reasons that, like, I like – I really don't like the corrections, but I really love freedom. Like, as, as problematic as, like, whatever Jonathan Franzen's books are now, um, like, I connected emotional, like, deeply emotionally with freedom. Like, and I civilly connect- problematic? Is, is there, like, a, a civil problem? I just – I when I was doing my MFA stuff, we read this book um, by this guy who um, is he's Japanese and he, he's talking about race – in um, in art and how not about cultural appropriation per se, but that if you're gonna write about if you're gonna put an Indian woman in your book, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She can't just be an Indian woman in your book. She has to be a fully realized version of like the Indian American experience. You don't have to have like an extra thousand pages describing her entire backstory, but it should be present on the page rather than her just being like a fun juxtaposition to like Another the white, white man's person, yeah. white wife type yeah. of thing. Um, and so freedom is now kind of under is being scrutinized because there is an, there's, there's an Indian American character who's literally just there to like fuck a white guy. So that's just like one example, but um, I just, I, it's like the first one that like pops up. It comes, or, or okay. I think something like I just told some woman to read Moby Dick at the library and she was like, oh, I've just heard it's, you know, Moby Dick. And I was like, but it's actually really, like, if you just ignore what everyone says about Moby Dick and just read it, it's 
it's a really fun novel. It's not like difficult at all. It's very clear. Um, like all the whaling stuff is like pretty good. It has, and because of that, that, that clarity, it has an emotional um, resonance to it that exists beyond like its classic status. You know what I mean? Um, it's I, I don't get into like Henry James. I've found really difficult because there's only a couple of books that I resonate with emotionally. Um, and I don't, I just can't get off and Virginia Woolf is the same way. Like I can, I really resonate to like half of the waves and, or half of, um, uh, to the lighthouse and all of Mrs. Dalloway and everything else. I'm pretty like, I'm pretty distant from because I, I'm just responding to it as like an art, a piece of art rather than like an emotionally resonant piece of art. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's but again so I like I've got problem like you know my number one might be cinematically problematic, but like well yeah, yeah that that's gonna be like whereas my number one's commonly considered to be one of like the great all time films because from like a I'll be the judge of that from Mark. a technical standpoint though <laughs> like and that's that's I think what's gonna be the interesting division that happens from here on out is like outside of a few movies that pop up on my list just because of the where they connected with me. Um, from you know just just from growing and and what I was then had a proclivity towards looking for in a film. Uh, most of these films just show up in my film because I consider them great technical pieces of art. <laughs> Phantom Thread. I think the last thing I want to say about Phantom Thread, and then obviously you can say whatever you want. Um, I think. A really interesting thing is that the Johnny Greenwood score, like I have the I have the, the record, um, <coughs> is not sequenced in relationship to the movie. It has its own sequence. Yeah, no, it's like a concept record. Yeah, which I also have. Like I can, you can read into that like however you want. Also, where it's it's quality or it's. Um, context is not really even relevant to the movie it's it has its own context i do love i'm looking at dillian tichnier I, I don't know if i'm saying his name right his his like filmography yeah i have to say this guy this guy picks some interesting interesting movies to go around like with. what so he does boogie nights and magnolia and after that he works on like unbreakable oh, he yeah. goes over to the royal tannenbaums it's a good one and he does like cold creek manor Cold Creek Manor. I mean, I guess that was a, you know, from somebody. And like, Brokeback Bound, Assassination, Jesse James, uh, There Will Be Blood, Doubt, then Whip It. Oh, yeah, the Drew Barrymore Roller Girl movie. Yeah, the Drew movie. Then he does, like, a couple other ones. He unfortunately does Zero Dark Thirty. Um, a couple more movies. He does Fan Thread. He hasn't done a movie in three years. Yeah, he's coming back in April with Antlers. <laughs> Oh, he's doing Antlers? He's editing Antlers, which also has a Javier Navarte score. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not... I'm that's not a, that's interesting. I like the short story that Antlers was based on, but... Yeah, we'll see about Antlers. But the, it's looking like the crew around it is promising. That's good. Scott Cooper, though. Hmm? Scott Cooper has the tendency to... Tendency to miss the mark for me. What was the last thing Scott Cooper did? Uh, last thing he did, he's only directed five things. He did Hostels, which was good. Oh, okay. But, um, and Crazy Heart, which I love. Yeah, Crazy Heart was good. But he also did Out of the Furnace, which was just like 
okay but wildly disappointing. Well, that was that Christian Bale, um, Woody Harrelson, and Ben Foster movie about like the small like pits. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania town. It's a good cast. I didn't see that. Um, yeah, it feels like it's gonna be great. And it just misses. But he also did Black Mass. Mm. Yeah, and Black not, Mass stinks. Not Alistair Black's finisher. Black Mass, the Johnny Depp movie. Yeah, that movie was terrible. If it was a movie about Alistair Black's finisher, that would have been awesome. Is that a wrestling guy? He just says, "I absolve you of sins," and then spin kicks you in the head. It's what you do to me every day, every Tuesday, Mario. <laughs> Super Bowl. <laughs> I just kept doing it to you. He was in Gods and Generals, too, Scott Cooper. He was in it? Yeah, he was an actor. Huh. It's also in that Get Low movie. It's Get Low. That Robert Duvall movie where Robert Duvall plays the old man. That's just sad. It's gone in 60 <laughs> seconds, you mean? <laughs> but yeah. Um, no, just Phantom, Phantom Thread is just this movie that felt good. It just felt good. It made me realize, I guess it made me realize that I respond... No, it didn't make me realize. It was just reaffirmation of I respond to just what I feel to be like cinematic Lego pieces coming together. You know, mm-hmm. I like to bake. Talked about me cooking for the Super Bowl. Yeah. And I like it when I throw a bunch of ingredients together and I make something that tastes good. Mm. And so I appreciate when a bunch of ingredients, a bunch of people are thrown together, they make something that just tastes good. Well said. good or sounds good. This is the, this is the, Philly cheesesteak egg rolls of the films. I was going to say the chicken wings. I preferred my chicken wings. The chicken wings are good. Those egg rolls are really good, too. The Philly cheesesteak needed like a little more of a... Just needed a little more spice to it to me. I think you're wrong. Those chicken wings were fucking amazing, though. I feel like I'm going to... Ladies, I make really good chicken wings. It does make really good chicken wings, ladies. Although I will say this, and we'll start in an episode here, but we always end it with, with, with non-sequiturs. Um, so I, got, I didn't get like the frozen chicken wings or whatnot. I actually just got like, the value pack of it. And like so, the whole wings. Mm-hmm. And so you had to cut it up, and like taking off the um, that that non-important part of the wing is pretty easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I just put those in a bag. I'm gonna make use it for a stock at some point when I make like a soup. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you're cutting out the drumette between the flat, like sometimes you cut into it, and like you cut into the mirror, and it just like it's like bleeding. Yeah, you're just like sitting there going, "Oh man, this is gross. This is this is an." That's when you like realize, "All oh, right, this is an animal." Yeah, and then you cook it and you eat it, and you're like, "Never mind, it's okay. I can deal with that." Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird <coughs> compromise we all make. All of us carnivores, we're all omnivores. Well, yeah, we eat everything, but right. we also except lobster. I don't eat lobster because of because it's gross. It just tastes disgusting yeah. to me. I keep trying to eat lobster in different ways, and it just is not working. I haven't tried lobster pizza or lobster mac and cheese. Lobster mac and cheese is great. One of these days, I'm going to try one of those, and because I'm I I don't like lobster pizza. I don't like the fact that I don't like lobster. Why? It's the one food I just don't like. Makes you a cheap date, ladies. That's true. He's not going to order lobster. I will get when you pay for your date. Yeah, yeah. I don't pay for my dates. (laughs) What are you talking about? Um. That's it. 34. How do we want to organize this now that we add the Oh, Jesus. Oh, right. Um, number. I'll go first. Uh, nobody called last week. That's okay. <coughs> it's just one week. Yeah, I got to get used to it. Um, maybe I'll make JP call or something. I don't know if that's going to like open the floodgates. I'll make one of my, I'll make one of my kids call. Um, you can give us a call at 475-777-2450 can- and tell us. 
Uh, I can be really pivotal film is on like a, a Reddit. <laughs> no, that, that'll open the floodgates. A certain floodgate we don't want to open. Um, you give us a call, tell us about your pivotal film. Uh, we'll play it on the air. I'll put some cool music behind it. It's just for fun. You know, you don't, you don't win. want to. Open, you don't, you want don't to open win the, anything. You don't want to open the floodgate of that. Of that. No. Um, put it on the Donald. On your. I'll DM the real Donald Trump. What's your, what's your pivotal film? You piece of shit. Um, and then he responds. Yeah, he would respond. We wouldn't put it on the air. We'd be famous, I think. We should probably put it on the air. No, that's good. No, we'd be like, we'd play a second of it and just be like, we're not going to I can't do it. We just, we just can't <laughs> do it. Um, all right, yeah. Four, did you ever see his review of Citizen Kane? It'd be fucking, whatever his review would be would be terrible. What was his review for Citizen Kane? I'll show it to you after. Okay. Uh, four seven five seven 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 two four five zero. Call us. Pivotal film. Or you can always tweet us at the Twitter I never use at film pivotal. <laughs> uh, or you can go to pivotalfilmpodcast@gmail.com uh, to send us. You know, if you want to write about your pivotal film, we'll read it on the air. I guess that's a thing that we can do. We can read. Um, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com to see a list of the movies on our list. Uh, how to subscribe to us. Uh, links to our Twitter, links to um, our lists and essays and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. What are we doing next? What are we seeing next week? I'm going to try to go see uh, Birds of Prey. I'm thinking Birds of Prey. We'll see what happens. I'll, I'll see it. There's some Netflix I'll, stuff. What else too, are we going to do? So. Yeah, what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do, Mario? It's middle of February. Got to wait for the New Hampshire primary. I'm sure that's going to go better. I bet it's going to go worse. No, they're going to have results before the polls close, actually. They're going to be like, Bernie Sanders, wi- oh, wait, it's polls gonna, aren't closed. It's going to well, be like a Donald Sutherland. Cats out of the bag. Donald Sutherland in Australia in JFK situations. Like, JFK was already dead. They're going to get Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro? And what, Wag the Dog? Yeah. Is that Robert De Niro? Yeah. Okay, good. I never saw that movie. Is that Barry Levinson? Yeah. I think uh, Barry, not, not Sonnenfeld, I think it was Levinson. Yeah, Levinson. Um, I get my Barrys confused. It um, was. I never saw that movie. It's actually pretty good. It's pretty funny. I don't know if I could. We can't watch it anymore, though. Why? Because we canceled Dustin Hoffman. David Mamet co-wrote that screenplay? Um, but yeah, until then, go uh, watch Wag the Dog, drink a beer. Dennis and... Leary's in it. Oh, boy. Dennis Leary's great. <laughs> we're going to have a special ref episode. Oh, Dennis Leary. No, I love Dennis Leary. You thought it was Dennis Miller? I was thinking Dennis no. Miller. Dennis Miller's out. <laughs> okay. Dennis Leary's fine. No thanks, I don't care. Dennis Miller. I don't care if he stole all this stuff from um, Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks sucked. Yeah. Bill Hicks wasn't good at... The... No, Bill Hicks was great. Bill Hicks could... I'm going to say this. It's, it's going to be a cold thing to say. It's not going to be that cold. It's not, it's not insulting him being dead. And everyone appreciates... Everyone thinks he's a great comedian. That's fine. His delivery didn't work for me. There's something about his cadence that just doesn't work it's like mitch hedgeberg mitch hedgeberg i, I will argue this though mitch hedgeberg fucking sucked mitch hedgeberg Bill, had good jokes <laughs> he had good jokes but he just kind of like delivered them so flat but when he delivered him when he delivered him when the delivery and the joke matched it was like terrific there was that uh what you call it, cologne joke like fajita cologne that was funny i don't know the, i love my one of my favorite all-time stand-up bits is the donut joke i will say though i listened to in high school i had a i forgot disc it was from dennis leary um no cure for cancer no cure. it was no cure for cancer uh i listened to asshole constantly yeah 
because I was no 16. asshole is not like my favorite. No, but, but that I do like that uh that that entire special or whatever. See, I don't like I like Lock and Loaded better <laughs> than I like No Cure for Cancer. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. I think maybe because he had, uh, I think he had, did he have kids before? I don't think he had kids during No Cure for Cancer. So it became like half of it became about his kids and he was just being really mean about his kids. It was really, it was entertaining. Um, but yeah, Bill Hicks is great. You're super wrong about Bill Hicks. I don't think he's bad. I just don't think his delivery was, his delivery wasn't up to my, my, my fit style. Oh, 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 oh. But then again, I like Jim Gaffigan, so who knows what my Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Are you going to say that you like Brian Regan also? No, I'm a big Dane Cook guy. Are you really? No. No, I'm not. I don't like a lot of stand-up. I'm I, suspicious of this comment. I really don't actually like a lot of stand-up. I don't like a lot of stand-up either. But I definitely don't like stand-up. I like who I like. I like stand-up like I like... like Artists. Like I do painters. like. I do like Jim Gaffigan. Go see a movie. Jim Gaffigan.